It's Thursday, May 21st. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool, Rule Breakers, and Supernova, Simon Erickson and David Kretzman. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, we are going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to talk about sports marketing, the business of sports marketing, and I should say the wisdom of sports marketing. We'll get into all of that. But let's start with this little bit of news, and I guess, guys, I, I should start by saying, if you've ever wanted to run your own home improvement business, I've got some really good news. Lumber Liquidator CEO Robert Lynch resigned this morning, effective immediately. The stock's down 14%. This is pretty amazing, because I don't know about you, Simon, but the coverage that I read of this makes me think that nobody knew this was coming. Nobody at the company, I think, knew this was coming. Uh, was coming. It was very unexpected, Chris. <laughs> you know, just kind of when a CEO abruptly and unexpectedly resigns, that's normally a, a kind of a red flag, right? Yeah. I, I would say, I mean, this is this is not the first problem that, that Lumber Liquidator has, Lumber Liquidators has had. I mean, you know, you've almost got a trifecta at this point. You've got a tough industry, which is notorious for low margins. You've got uh, just a couple months ago, we saw a PR and publicity problem. You know, with the uh, the volatile organic compounds, people are worried about safety and their kids and their homes and stuff like that. PR problem. That's like understatement. Of yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> major PR. Yeah, problem. let's be clear. Lumber Liquidators has a PR problem. Because they have an actual uh, problem, and, and now on top of, of both of those, you've got a morale problem. So I, you know, this is either at this point just been so crunched down that it's a fantastic buying opportunity, or there's just future pain for shareholders. But I'm personally staying away. Well, so you raise an interesting point about the margins because that was always, all right, maybe not always, but for a long time, that was the bull case for this company. It's like, well, they have great margins. It's typically, as you said, a low-margin business, but they've got great margins, and that. So, let's say, for the sake of argument, that they get a new CEO in there, the founder, who I think is also chairman of the board, who was interviewed in that 60 Minutes piece, and I don't think there's anybody who thought he did a good job. Um, he's going to be the interim CEO for however many months until they can find someone to take this job. But if they, if someone gets in there and can actually turn it around. Even then, does it become an interesting investing opportunity? Because if the solution for lumber liquidators is, look, we're going to do everything we can to get our reputation back, and that means we're going to have to sacrifice questionable wood sourcing, which means we're going to have lower margins. Yeah, I mean, that, this is tough, right? I mean, if you're a publicly traded company trying to maximize profits, you either raise prices and get your top line as high as you can. Uh, which, which, good luck with that for hardwood flooring. I mean, it's really hard to to compete with higher prices and convince customers that you've got a better product. Or you work on the cost line, you know, the line items of, of your expenses. And I think that's what Lumber Liquidators has gone after traditionally. I think that's tr- proven a little harder than yeah. than we've than we've expected it to be in the last couple of years. So, still a tough business. David, did they have to change their name? And and stick with me for a second because I I know you I know you weren't. Uh, focused on investing 15 years ago, but 15 years ago when I think it was about 15 years ago when the Enron scandal happened, and one of the uh, ripple effects of that was the consulting firm working with Enron that was saying everything's just fine was Arthur Anderson, which to that point had a really good reputation, 
And to remake itself, Arthur Anderson rebranded itself as a censure. A name that at the time, uh, a friend of mine at the time was working at Arthur Anderson, and uh, when she told me what the new name was going to be, I just laughed at her because I just thought it was I thought it was a silly name and shows what I know because that's actually that's a stock that's done quite well over the past decade. But you know, to bring it back to the topic at hand, Arthur Anderson was a radioactive business because of what they had gone through. And part of the solution for them was a complete rebranding. And I'm wondering if three to five years from now, Lumber Liquidators has turned, thing, turned things around, if that's part of the equation. It's an interesting question. Uh, I think it might be a little harder for a retailer like Lumber Liquidators than it is for a firm, uh, a firm like Accenture, where Accenture is offering more consultation services, more soft services, whereas Lumber Liquidators, they're offering you hardwood. You know, they're offering stuff for your floor. Changing the name might help, like, down, down the road. But, I mean, for now, like, I don't think anyone's going to say, hey, we need hardwood. Let's definitely go to Lumber Liquidators after seeing them on 60 Minutes. But I, I don't know. I think it's going to take more than a name change. Like, the, the company is really going to have to take a look at its culture, take a look at its its sourcing, and a whole lot of different things. As, as Simon mentioned, now you have morale issues within the company when the CEO is leaving. I think the company really just needs to take a hard look at suppliers, employees, uh, shareholders, all, all the different stakeholders in the business, because right now it is certainly not <laughs> in a healthy situation. And I mentioned uh, shareholders, and j- just from a capital allocation perspective, the company's done some qu- questionable things over the past few years. So starting in 2012, uh, management began repurchasing shares you know, through the company each quarter. So starting the first quarter of 2012, all of a sudden that stopped two quarters ago when the stock started to fall. So that shows me like, okay, management probably, <laughs> that doesn't give me much confidence in this management team's ability to allocate capital in a, in a smart way. Then you also have pretty low insider ownership of about 3%. Uh, thankfully, uh, Thomas Sullivan, who's a founder and you know is stepping in as interim CEO, he owns a little bit uh, o- over two percent. But I mean, go- going back to the financials, like uh, Lumber Liquidators, they're free cash flow negative uh, now, and then they also just added long-term debt to the balance sheet for the first time since 2006. So right now, I think we're seeing the symptoms of a pretty unhealthy business all across the board with all the stakeholders. So definitely a lot of red flags right now. You can follow us on Twitter at MarketFoolery is our handle. Question from Tavo Ermanis in South Africa. He writes, prices of rooftop solar fell 25% last year, and 187,000 homeowners installed solar panels. Will continued price drops not hurt Solar City? How can you, you look at this company closely? Simon, what do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, Tabo, this is an excellent question. This is exactly the kind of questions you should be asking as an investor uh, if, if you're interested in Solar City in the first place. Um, the answer is actually the the decrease in the in the cost of solar, uh, reductions in the levelized cost of energy for solar has been so accelerated in the last couple of years that it's now competitive with other forms of electricity generation like natural gas. That has been very good for Solar City because now they're getting down to price points that they can make it affordable to offer to customers. So that's really helped their their adoption of, of this business. Um, now that it's affordable, you know, you saw a ton of of solar manufacturers, the guys that are making the panels themselves, come online the last couple of years. It was a huge oversupply in the market, and uh, Solar City has been as a business 
um, sourcing those panels from externally. And now the interesting thing, which is where I'm going with this answer, is is now SolarCity is at a point that they're seeing the incremental improvements, the reductions in the cost um, per solar panel produced, kind of leveling out. It's not as exaggerated as before, and they're actually building their own manufacturing of solar panels. It's going to be right outside of Buffalo, New York. And I think that this is a prudent move because at some point you start seeing those incremental improvements kind of slowing down. You need to put a stake in the ground and say, hey, this is where we're, gonna, we're going to manufacture these in-house. You get a lot of supply. And you know they've got aggressive goals for how much capacity they want to deploy in the next couple of years. Um, I think this takes a lot of risk out of the investment when you don't have to worry about external supply and you can kind of bring it all in-house. So good move for the company, I think. Uh, quick question. Isn't Solar City based in the southwest part of the United States? California. Okay. Yeah. Okay, California. Why Buffalo, New York? Nothing against Buffalo, but when I when I think solar energy and solar panels, I'm not thinking Buffalo, New York. I'm just uh, any idea why they why they picked that location? They looked at a bunch of locations. There was actually a lot of tax benefits they got, incentives from uh, the Buffalo area who was looking for some manufacturing jobs. And you know, it, it's not so much that they had to immediately put those panels up in Buffalo, right. but you're, you're yep. looking for a lower cost of production. Yep. And, and going back to the, the, uh, the, that great question, uh, I, when, when you look at a company like Solar City, and Simon essentially mentioned this, but it's a good thing for them when uh, the cost of the panels and the installations, it's a great thing for Solar City when those costs go down. So uh, I, I know when I first looked at Solar City, it, it's a little bit of a confusing company at first, but you have to recognize that those hard costs, the the, the panels, the installation costs, when those go down, Solar City benefits. And we should point out, too, that Solar City is selling the power to residents over 20 years. They're not actually selling the panels just for somebody else to take care of. So when the costs go down, that actually helps their profitability over time, which is something else that's been pretty good for that company. Yeah. Uh, before we get to our final topic, a couple of housekeeping notes. We are not here on Monday because it is Memorial Day. The market is closed. Therefore, we are close, so we will be back on Tuesday. Uh, secondly, regarding Tuesday's discussion on Oreos, got a comment from Mabel Nunez in New York City. She wrote on Twitter, red velvet Oreos should be illegal. I think I'm with her on that one, because red velvet, yeah, even if you like red velvet, red velvet Oreos are just are just horrible. And I wasn't here, but I, I, I listened to that episode. I, I completely agree with uh, the point Mark made. The the Mondelez people blew it. Uh, you come up with a s'mores Oreo, and you're you're not calling it s'moreos. Come on, that's that, a no-brainer. That's a crime. Right? What are you doing? Have some fun, people at Mondelez. All right. Final story. This was something that appeared in the Washington Post earlier this week, and it has to do with sports marketing and more specifically sports naming rights, where companies, businesses, pay in some cases, millions of dollars to brand, put their brand on a sports stadium. Locally in the Washington, D.C. area, the place where the Washington Capitals hockey team and the Washington Wizards basketball team play is the Verizon Center. That was something that Verizon inherited when they bought MCI because MCI paid for those naming rights. Verizon buys MCI, so it's it's now the Verizon Center, and the story in the Post was that even though Verizon was not going to confirm this information, it gives every appearance that when their, I guess, lease runs out, when their contract to have their naming rights runs out in a couple of years, they're just going to let it expire. They're not going to renew. 
and the the number I saw was that they're paying seven million dollars a year to have that place called the Verizon Center. And I'm sure there are other things that come with that. I'm sure there's box seats and they can entertain partners and clients and employees and all sorts of things. But it just sort of got me thinking. I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I look at that as kind of a red flag. Not a huge red flag, but anytime I see a company is spending millions of dollars, I it makes me question the value of that money spent. And David, I'll just start with you. And even allowing for the fact that $7 million for a company as big as Verizon is kind of a drop in the bucket, I still look at that and go, I feel like there's better ways for them to spend that money. That's a little red flag for me. Is it for you? It could be. I think my issue with uh, you know companies you know buying the right to have the name a stadium after them, it's hard to measure the payback of something like that. How do you measure your return on investment? You can't you can't put a hard number on, we got X number of subscribers because we have the Verizon Center at, at, as the name of that stadium. So that, that's the issue for me. Like, you know, would there be any way that you can more effectively deploy that money in another, you know, an, another uh, marketing outlet where you can actually measure the success of it? Otherwise, I think it's really more speculative. It's more subjective. I don't know if that's the best place you know, to put your marketing dollars. For a company as big as Verizon, they have so much cash. You know, I think they can afford to take those subjective risks more than you know, a smaller company could. But still, I, I would wonder. I bet they could find a more effective way to spend seven million dollars on on a marketing budget. That would be my guess, but it's it's hard to say. And Simon, let's be clear: Verizon's making money. They're fine. This is not like ten years ago, or I should say nine years ago, two thousand six, when the NBA Finals, the two teams playing were the Miami Heat and the Dallas Mavericks. And the Miami Heat played at the American Airlines Arena, right? And the Dallas Mavericks played in Dallas at the American Airlines Center. <laughs> so you have, at the time, a wildly unprofitable airline spending more than eight million dollars a year to put their name on not one but two NBA arenas. I mean, I, I, I think David nailed it on this one. I, I, I mean, you know, Verizon needs to focus on increasing their subscribing customers. I don't think anyone that walks out of the Verizon Center immediately starts thinking that they need to change their cell phone plan. And, you know, in a world of Google Analytics and targeted advertising and Facebook, I think there's a lot better ways to spend that money. Is there, I mean, like I said, this is, this is something that I look at as an investor, and it's, it's a small red flag. What's, and I'll start with you, Simon, just what's one thing that you see, one number, whether it's how a company is spending money, investing, whatever, whatever they do, what's one thing you see as a red flag? Well, I've got a general example and then a specific one, okay. if, you, if you don't mind, Chris. The, the general answer to that is just that, that SG&A line is always kind of a hard one to interpret as an investor. I mean, it's a lot of fluff in there. SG&A yeah, standing a, a for? Selling general administrative. This is kind of, and it's specifically, you know, the sales and marketing piece of that. It's how is a company, um, it, it should, that should be an investment to get customers to sign up for the longer term. But it's, it's hard to quantify the return on investment. So that's always one that's a little bit difficult um, at least from just the, the numerical value to interpret as an as investor. And then the specific example, you're asking what I think something that is not a good investment is. I would say um, Super Bowl commercials that are not memorable. Like, do you remember last year's Heroes Charge Super Bowl commercial? I don't think, no. Exactly. It was the worst 
response from customers for any of the Super Bowl commercials as, as <laughs> published by the USA Today. I mean, that's an expensive advertising that's not going a long way. You want something that's going to resonate, and that's my specific example. Oh, yeah. If you're, by all means, if you see a company you own shares of ponying up, right now the estimates are that for the Super Bowl in early 2016, the bidding starts at $5 million Jeez. for a 30-second ad. So. Jeez. Keep an eye. You, you don't have to be a football fan. <laughs> Just as an investor, that's the thing you want to watch. David, what's a what's a red flag number for you? Uh, I, I, I look at how a company is allocating its cash. Uh, I tend to get weary when a company goes into debt to buy back stock. And there are some CEOs, there are some management teams that are incredible with the use of debt. There are some that do it really well. They generate a lot of value for shareholders. But I sort of, I, th- th- for me, that's a red flag when a company, especially if a company goes from a position where it has a good amount of cash, no debt, and it goes to <laughs> sucking all its cash out, going, getting a huge amount of long-term debt. Select Comfort was a company that did this right before the Great Recession, and that that did not help things. I mean, the company managed to bounce back, and it turned out okay. But at the time, that was that was a roller coaster. Pretty uncomfortable. Slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, slightly uncomfortable. So I would say, uh, yeah, if a company's going into debt, they better have a really good reason for it. They better be generating strong free cash flow in a, in a way that you know that they can pay it back. Select Comfort was a company, the business was struggling. They started uh, reducing their cash position, going into debt. It happened to be right before the recession. The stock got absolutely crushed, you know, below, like, I think, 50 cents a share. So for me, that, that, that would be a red flag. And what slightly adds to the risk is the current interest rate environment that we have. Because you're right, there are phenomenal capital allocators out there with great track records. But we're in an environment right now where interest rates are so low and have been so low for so long that people who don't have a great track record or maybe aren't that good, they're making the case for what you're talking about in part by saying, well, look how cheap the the money is. Right. I think what you need to watch is any company that has a large amount of debt, you have to be sure that they have strong cash generation. If they don't have that, I think it'll, it will get pretty ugly for those companies come the next correction, the next recession. So make sure those companies are in a strong cash flow position. David Cressman, Simon Erickson. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We're not here Monday, so we'll see you on Tuesday. <laughs>